Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And by the way, I'm Kirk. And, well, I'm Eric. <laughs> Uh, The podcast is generously sponsored by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena a little more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. And you can email us at hello at letshearitcast.org. Now let's get to the show. Okay, Eric. Jesse Salazar, tell us everything. <laughs> tell you everything. Jesse Salazar. <laughs> Jesse Salazar was the head of communications at the Council on Foundations. And I remember distinctly that Minna Jung and Joanne Krell and I, we were all board members at the Communications Network. We were assigned to go woo Jesse because the word was out that he was smart. And that he would be a great board member. And he ended up being a great board chair. We, we succeeded in wooing him. And, he's, and now, he, now he works for a consultancy. He wouldn't let me say <laughs> what the consultancy is. So, we can't, so it's a, a, he's in an undisclosed location working for a consultancy. But oh, and the other really wonderful thing about Jesse is that he 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 really does have the voice for radio. <laughs> he, has, he has the deepest, most sonorous voice on the face of the earth. I've long said I have a voice for silent films. <laughs> Jesse has a voice for radio. And another really funny story. Jesse got started in the business. He was pretty young. I I can't remember if this is in the interview he was pretty young and he he made a point of doing all of his meetings by phone and they they thought he was like you know this 40 year old guy and he was 21 oh my goodness because he's got this really deep voice but yeah so jesse um has just now termed out as the chair of the communications network our conversation is about kind of what he's seen over that time and a whole bunch of other things that's a really it went a little long but we were just having too much fun well and just again what a great opportunity to be a fly on the wall given how well that you guys know each other and how long you've worked together so um okay eric and yeah. jesse oh, and- you know I'm, I'm running out of cronies i just have yeah. to I, have you know i'm yeah. running out of cronies pretty soon i'm going to have interviews with strangers and they're wow. not going to nearly have the same tone brave new world brave new world well let's listen to jesse and then uh, we'll come back and talk after jesse salazar All right. Well, I'm here with Jesse Salazar, the who has he is the chair emeritus of the like, of I, the communications network. I was I was put to pasture yesterday. Put to pasture. You formerly ran communications at the Council on Foundations. Did you run communications? Was that your title? Yes, I I was hired as the vice president of communications. Right. And after two years of meddling, I ended up as the VP of content design. Ooh. Which was a new position. That essentially recognized that communications was understood to be a profession that puts information out into the ecosystem. And content is something that is created by experts. 
uh, in order to create these knowledge products that people can then consume. So, and so I think you my were more expert. It, yeah, it my reflected. change in title was 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 a reflection of the need to design content and insights in a way that people could find usable and worthwhile at the beginning, and not after the product was complete. All right, I must I must meditate on that. But no, it's it's, it's it's it sounds important. And now you work at a consultancy. Yes, I moved into the private sector January of last year. From philanthropy, got it. Um, but in the in the private sector, I was working on pro bono projects, vetting charitable contributions, and working on uh, you know building volunteerism and energy for nonprofit causes. Got it. And so let's talk a little bit about the communications network because we've both been on the board for some time. Can can you were, you've been chair for the last two years? What what's that like? I was chair a long time ago, and I've forgotten. And it's a much different organization now than it used to be. So, I mean, just tell me what that's like. Um, I think at first I felt weird that I was in a position of leadership with a group of such impressive people. The experience of going to the communication... Present company excluded. <laughs> <laughs> For the record. I completely disagree. I find you very impressive. Well... Um, you know, when you go to the communications network, you meet all of these people with different superpowers. You have people like Doug Hathaway, they're expert in messaging and the science of communications. You know, you have expert researchers, you've got brilliant media people, you've got journalism backgrounds, you've got people with Pulitzer Prizes. And so I thought, why on earth would I be leading an organization of these people? Um, but I think that's a common experience that people have at a certain point in their careers. And luckily, there were a number of people who, you know, were among those ranks that sponsored me along the way, like you, like Alfred Ironside at the Ford Foundation, Minna Jung at Packard Foundation, Joanne Krell at Kellogg. And once these people came and said, you know, we believe in what you could do, then I began to believe it over time. And, uh, so the, the affirmations were helping? Yes, the uh, affirmations are very helpful. Uh, and the other thing is that I, I wanted to bring a new creative energy to the organization. There was something wrong about philanthropy in the social sector, and I didn't quite understand what it was, but I had a bad feeling. And I think that feeling was that philanthropy in the gatherings that I'd known you know, tended toward the elite, tended toward the luxurious. It tended toward a distance from the people who were actually affected by the impact um, of the work. And so I felt like there needed to be a closing of that gap. And my hope was that as chair, we could do some of that and have more engagement with the broader community. To just to let's talk about that a little bit. So philanthropy was this thing that was separated from normal human beings is that well it has money <laughs> right and so there was a natural separation from from those who didn't have that kind yeah. of resource isn't that the thesis of um that new book that's out right now about Which book? about oh god i'm so embarrassed anand his first name is anand and there's this book about kind of this modern about how old philanthropy is kind of crusty and and hidebound and doesn't really connect with, that it actually reinforces the um, elite sets of um, structures in our society. So philanthropy is designed to 
perpetuate and ensure and defend wealth in its current system. Uh, was, is that what you were thinking, or am I? Well, that might be. Neither of us have read the book. That it would might seem be so. a researched, fact-based <laughs> articulation of what my my hunch was. Uh, so I don't know. I haven't read the book, but I do. You know, <laughs> we should, we should the, read this wonderful book. <laughs> yeah, titled, don't don't listen author. to this podcast. Go and read this book, and maybe a little history on philanthropy. <laughs> this podcast only has the smartest, most well-read, learned people asking and answering questions. <laughs> this is the first and last read or listen. Uh, All right. So based on our amazing um, ability, no, but but I I believe that that's the thesis, that philanthropy just perpetuates the system that created the wealth that allowed the philanthropy. I'm really uh, kind of thumbnailing it. But is a you think that's you think that's true? And if so. Um, are we? I mean, is that what the communication the, network is, and other institutions are designed to try and push against? That that thesis isn't new. It's something that was a part of the debate about the creation of early philanthropy. Um, it was a debate about the role of philanthropic institutions, and I would say that philanthropy, like anything else, goes through cycles where it is deeply connected to people, and in periods where it's a bit distant. Um, and I think it's. Uh, we're entering into a new age where foundations are really listening to what people have Mm -hmm. to say. And we've moved past this idea that nonprofits should be thrilled any time a foundation wants to send money their way. Nonprofits are sources of ideas, and they're coming up with really interesting, innovative work. And I think foundations are recognizing that, and they're beginning to have much more of a public engagement function. So they've moved beyond putting out a press release to really listening actively to the people that they're working with. And I think that's I think that's healthy. Yeah. Are there some examples that you would point to this, you know, particular foundations that you think are are demonstrating that in ways that we could identify? Um, The first foundation that comes to mind is the Knight Foundation. Mm -hmm. The Knight Foundation is by the amount of money it distributes, not one of the top 10 foundations in the country. But its ability to listen to people on social media, to engage with journalists, to um, build an ecosystem of ideas, I think is really impressive. You know, it's one of the few organizations in the sector that funds a conference where people can just get together and talk about what they're learning, um, the Media Impact Summit, which I think is fantastic. So, okay, so you're going to laugh your ass off right now because the Knight Foundation is funding this podcast, but you didn't know that. I swear to God, you didn't know that. I did not know that. I, I was log rolling them. I don't know if that's embarrassing or so elegant. Let's just say it's fate. So this is the sound. This of is the, the kind of innovation that the Knight Foundation is bringing forward. This is the sound of the host blushing. If you can hear the sound of blushing uh, over a podcast, that's it. No, that's really funny. Okay. Uh, who else <laughs> besides the absolutely glorious Knight Foundation? Um, well, uh, you know, I have a discrete example, which is what the, the Miami Foundation did around last year's hurricane. Right. They they went out, they listened to the needs of nonprofits. They had engagement with national foundations, national nonprofits to try to figure out how all these national resources could be leveraged. And I think that speaks to this idea that the new foundation, a modern foundation, is less a source of money and more a source of ideas. 
and uh, a hub of ideas. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good to know. I, I've always said that foundations are a lot like kids who watch the other kids play on the schoolyard or in the playground because they because they get, you know you give money. I've said this before, so people are going to start getting bored by it. But you, you know, they give money to other people who do stuff, and is. And do you see that changing? You see the foundation totally actually yeah, having a I voice. Just, I, I they mean, take so, a perspective. They have a, do they have a right to have a perspective? What what is their kind of what gives them the right other than the fact that they're holding on to a checkbook that has a lot of zeros in it? So those are different things. I mean, the first is are we seeing the shift? And yes, I think we're seeing the shift, and it's being led by some really ambitious foundations. Um, you know, for me, this kind of big shift really got crystallized in the way that the foundations came, big foundations came together to facilitate the bankruptcy of Detroit and to protect mm-hmm. the, the Detroit Institute of Art. I mean, that was ambitious grant making. Mm-hmm. Um, and it involved more than writing a check. It was people having conversations, working with policymakers, working with social, um, social sector leaders to deal with a, a root cause problem for many other ills in the city. Um, and my hope is that foundations will be ambitious in the way that they act. And if you want to really solve these huge problems, you can't just write a check. You have to talk with people. You have to try things, fail, try new things and share what you're learning. Um, so another example, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm proud of because I had a, a little hand in it is something called the philanthropy joining forces impact pledge or the Veterans Philanthropy Exchange. It was this $350 million uh, initiative um, to get foundations who were supporting veterans to come together and share what they learned. Um, So the idea was essentially that since Vietnam, there had not been a vibrant veteran support network, Mm -hmm. right, of nonprofits, because there was a generation without returning vets. And suddenly you had more than 3 million people coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan that needed support. And you had all these nonprofits that were in a lot of ways learning on the fly. They didn't have a playbook to use. So the idea was that they would pool what they were learning on the ground. And so you had, you know, an an organization in California that was an expert in domestic violence for veterans. Uh, There's another one that supports, you know, increasing uh, the rate at which people go in to seek social services. And by sharing these lessons, we were able to have a huge impact because all of these, you know, 50 plus veteran serving organizations were sharing lessons. And so this is, I think, really, really critical um, if you want to deal with some of these issues. And I do think that, you know, we shouldn't be having a debate about whether foundations have license to talk to each other. I think we should expect that they um, they have a responsibility to talk to each other. Well, yeah, I'm coordinating. <laughs> We could spend a, a year talking about how foundations do or don't collaborate because um, it's hard sometimes to get – I mean, you know, for example, just to get two foundations to use the same grant proposal is it can be difficult because, you know, they were like, oh, no, we have to have a box for this. Um, so getting coordination is can, – can be really hard. And it seems to me from the work that I've been doing, getting – if you get foundations that trust each other – then they're like, okay, fine, I'll use your form, or we can use your methodology, and I'm sure it'll be great. But I've I have found that it's so hard to get people to to agree to collaborate like that. What what was the thing that allowed you to do that in this area? 
Um, and this is the council, right? Uh, it was through, it was initially initiated through the council, but it started because the the guy who was at the time chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Mike Mullen, came to the Council on Foundations and had requested a keynote spot. Right. So when the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, <laughs> I would like, <laughs> I would cordially like a keynote spot. Right. <laughs> General Mullen, what time would you like to speak? <laughs> Um, so, so, you know, Admiral Mullen comes Admiral onto Mullen. the stage and he says, you know, we need a sea of goodwill that the country needs the country's philanthropic organizations to come together. And, you know, some people raise their hands and that is the kind of service that I think, you know, we can do when, when we're brought together. Um, so I want to go back and learn more about you because it's always interesting to hear how people ended up. Nobody goes into their parents' bedroom when they're five years old, like, mommy, daddy, I want to work in philanthropy. <laughs> you know, it's, I didn't it's really a, know it, that that was a thing. I'm from, <laughs> from rural Pennsylvania, by Scranton. From Scranton, where, yes. as you know, I made my professional theater. Yes, in the Masonic Temple. At the Masonic Temple in Scranton in September of 1974. Uh, so I have, Scranton is near and dear to my heart. Um, so what was it like being growing up in Scranton? I loved Scranton. I loved Scranton, but you know, you have to understand that I'm from outside of Scranton. So my actual hometown had 900 people. Um, if you think about the geography, there's Scranton and then there are the suburbs. And then we were one layer kind of outside of the suburbs of Scranton. Um, the and, Scranton exurbs, if you will. <laughs> yes, exactly. Nice. Uh, and my town, and I know this from the census data because I looked it up. Uh, had five Hispanic people, and all five of them were in my family. And there are six people in my family because my mother is not Hispanic. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we weren't known. We weren't known for our diversity, um, but I loved it there. I loved um, being on this beautiful kind of Norman Rockwell Street where kids are running around. Uh, unleashed. I mean, you go and play in the woods, you go down to the, the general store. We only had, you know, four or five shops downtown. There was a pharmacy, post office, bank, general store. Uh, now and I think there's a sewing. And the Masonic Temple. There. That's, out, out <laughs> uh, the, that's out in the big city. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, you're a little town, you mean. Okay, got it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I went to Catholic school, which I loved. Mm. Uh, well, really? Yes. You're the one. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm sure a psychologist could tell me that I was impacted by that experience, but uh, it gave me decent penmanship. <laughs> I went to Catholic school. I have a horrible penmanship. Um, <laughs> uh, and then I'd go to the big city in Scranton. I loved it. And, you know, that's where you got really good pizza, really good restaurants um, from, you know, the long history of Italians uh, having an impact on the city. Um, lots of Irish folks. You know, the the anecdote that I don't know is true, but always felt true is that Scranton has more bars and churches per capita than in any other place in the country. Really? Yeah. Oh, I wonder if San Francisco might give it a run for its money. But still. So then, then what? What? what you, you, you didn't stay in Scranton? No. Um, so, you know, in high school, I had no idea what I would want to do. Uh, you know, I at one point thought that I wanted to be a priest um, because the most learned cosmopolitan people that I knew were priests. Um, and so I heard about the world from the church and I, you know, just imagined that if I wanted to see the world, 
I would have to do it through through the church. Um, but uh, those of me, th- those people who know me well, know that that would not have been a great life for me. You, you would have made a very interesting <laughs> priest, I have to tell you. I uh, I don't think I would have been. You get the learned part. <laughs> you get the learned part, all right. <laughs> I don't have the patience. I, I'm not sure that I have the compassion. Um, so I, um, I I applied to every Ivy League school. I had never, you know, visited these Ivy League schools. Um, were you a good I student? Didn't. Were you were you? I was, yeah. yeah. I was um, number three in my class. I went to a Jesuit high school. Um, I took a lot of AP courses. I'm sorry, a lot of AP tests, even though we didn't have the courses. Hmm. So um, I just was self-teaching myself the AP classes, and that gave me a leg up. Um, and um, I got into a lot of schools and ended up at the University of Pennsylvania because I went there for the visit on uh, in a special program for Hispanic students hmm. where you can meet other Hispanic students. Um, and I loved the experience. Did, so did I take it you didn't engage with a lot of Hispanic people in your little exurb? That's right. What was That's that like? Right. Um, my father doesn't really speak very much Spanish in the home. He doesn't he doesn't culturally believe that, you know, he should be speaking Spanish with his family. He believes that mm-hmm. in the U.S. he should, you know, speak English. Um, and I think that's a unique, it's a unique thing. And, um, you know, on the one hand, I wish he'd spoke more Spanish because my Spanish would be better. Mm-hmm. Um, but he created tons of opportunities for me. And um, when I was younger, beginning at the age of six, I went down to Peru to stay with his family. Mm-hmm. And my dad's family is large and it was an amazing experience because um it's a very busy house where there are four people in every bedroom uh and you learn to get along and there are animals out back <laughs> that you would eat and where in peru you know, uh arequipa oh wow in the mountains yeah they they joke that it's the uh the independent republic of arequipa <laughs> and it's it's um Gosh, it's like uh it's like berkeley in a sense like it's where a lot of social movements start in peru um, because they're a bit insulated and they have their own culture. We would eat the animals in our neighborhood, the pigeons and the rats in, in Queens. It was you can make a nice stew. Um, we had guinea pigs. Kui. Yes, I've had kui, which is delicious. I, I wouldn't eat. My dad, when he eats kui, sucks the eyeballs out of their head, <laughs> which I find absolutely horrifying. And then he will take the lips of the guinea pig and nibble on them. And I think it's repulsive, but he says that's not multicultural. <laughs> Would you like some guinea pig lips? <laughs> Thank you, Noah. <laughs> um, so, okay, so you went to Penn, and then what'd you do? Um, so I went to Princeton to do my PhD in history. Uh, in between, I lived in an art co-op in Montreal. Did you get your really PhD? Fun. No. No. No, I, I joke that I'm a, a failed historian. Nice. <laughs> Did they give you a terminal master's? Yes. Good. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> you get the, the parting gift, you know. Exactly. <laughs> it's exactly. The, I, uh... It's the, the luggage. <laughs> you know, when you lose on let's make a deal, they give you some luggage or something. Oh, like my that. gosh. I mean, I left undergrad thinking, oh, God, I don't know anything. I felt like just in senior year, I realized what the point of school was. You know, when you're younger, you think you have to get these grades because that's that's the key that opens the next door. Mm-hmm. And then when you don't know where the next door is, everything's uncertain. And I just began, I, I finally reached this point senior year where, I, where I, I, I wanted to know things. And I felt like I had only scratched the surface. 
So that was really my real motivation to go to grad school. <laughs> um, and I got to read five books a week for about two years. Um, and that was great and very indulgent. Uh, but um, I was feeling distant from things. So I actually, while I was still in grad school, got involved in um, the Governor's Advisory Commission on Latino Affairs in Pennsylvania. I got an appointment from Governor Ed Rendell, who's a ah, kind yes. of famous figure uh, <laughs> doing Latino affairs. And I was the uh, youngest civil rights commissioner in Pennsylvania history. Whoa, that's cool. Um, yeah. Uh, but it was it was a sad time because after, this is a kind of odd thing, but after 9-11, a huge number of Hispanic people left New York for Pennsylvania. Hmm. And in a very short period, we'd gotten more than 200,000 new citizens and or new 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 people living in the town. I don't know if they're citizens or living in the state. Residents. Residents. That's the word that a communicator would use. <laughs> um, and this disrupted a lot of communities and it gave rise to some careers for some uh nationalist people. So one of the most famous figures in the country, this guy, Lou Barletta, uh, was mayor of the town of Hazleton, which is right south of Scranton. And Lou, uh, you know, made a national name for himself by passing all of these city ordinances against Hispanic people, mm. doing things like anyone suspected of, you know, being an illegal immigrant could be stopped and asked for their documentation, for right. example, of, of residence or citizenship. Um, and uh, there were also a large number of hate crimes that cropped up. Um, and so while I was civil rights commissioner, there was a, a really sad case of, um, and I won't use names here, but there was a guy who um, was a migrant farmer who was picking strawberries. He was about five foot five and he was beaten to death by three of the stars of the local football team. And it turned out that the investigative officer had been dating the mother of one of the suspects. Mm. And in this hometown where football is such a huge cultural um, cultural draw, cultural you know, community, um, the community kind of rallied around these football players. And this quite literally became a federal case. Um, and luckily justice was done, but it took many, many years. And at the time, the question was whether or not it was um, kind of a first step in a long, you know, in set of incidences that might be violent. And so we were able to, obviously Pennsylvania is still a changing place, but I mean, were you able to, what, what did you have to do as the civil rights commissioner in that context? Well, at the time like we were raising awareness about yeah. these issues, you know, because if you're from a, a small town in Pennsylvania and there's this local, uh, local case, there aren't press institutions that are really covering this in detail. Um, so I think a big responsibility was was making sure people are aware of this changing demographic and what it might mean. And so that, that experience with the Hispanic community led me to my first work in politics. Um, uh, I didn't really think of the Latino affairs position as, as politics. I thought of it more as government and uh, civil rights. Um, but the... Obama campaign was setting up shop and I had read Barack Obama's first book and thought it was really brilliant and insightful. And because I was reading books all the time about American history and by American political leaders at Princeton, I, um, I recognized the like, incredibly important voice that Barack Obama was bringing to the public dialogue. And I thought that it was the right place, the right time. And it resonated with me because I'm, you know, half 
Hispanic, you know, and my father's indigenous, half, you know, Irish white, um, you know, I'm queer, I'm from a rural town, you know, I've begun to get a little more cosmopolitan. So I could sympathize with Barack Obama because I've never really been a part of any mm. of it, or never f- felt fully a part of the different communities where I'd lived. Um, and so I went working, doing petitions to get him on the ballot in the primary. Mm. Um, and then continue to work on Hispanic vote. And in the primary, um, which happened in April of 2000, was it 2008 now? Yeah. Yep. Sorry, my memory goes, you know, when you're chairman emeritus. Let's <laughs> <laughs> put in emeritus next to your name, you age. <laughs> it was 2008, um, but it feels like it was 1008. Exactly, exactly. Um, the Hispanic vote had not come out. Uh, in any numbers. And so while Barack Obama lost by 10 points in that primary, the thing that I was looking at, because I was the director of Hispanic vote, um, was that Hispanics had gone from being one less than 1% of the electorate mm. to being 4% of the electorate in Pennsylvania. Um, and in a swing state, that is a massive political shift. Right. Um, and that was kind of how I got involved in, in Latino vote and then came back during the general election to work on Latino vote, went and onto the transition team. And I didn't really know that I knew anything about communications, but I ended up on the communications team for the presidential transition, which was an amazing privilege. That's amazing. That's really fun. What was that like? What'd you do? Um, so I would say that I had a very minor role. <laughs> I was unpaid. I was just one of the people issued credentials to come in. And I worked in this kiosk on the communications floor. And I remember like John Favreau was in another office across the hallway. Stephanie Cutter was to the right. There were these people that were actual leaders in communications there. And yeah. I was uh, monitoring YouTube comments. Uh, I was looking at Facebook um, and just spending, you know, most of the day on social media, which at the time was called new media. Right. And was still considered a bit kooky. That's amazing. Uh, But, you know, one of the weird memories that I have of this is that uh, I knew that I wasn't important on this transition or didn't feel particularly important. So I put out candy and I put out gum and mints. So that anyone who was passing by would come by. And I'll never forget that Jim Messina one day came and he said, oh, my gosh, this is great. You know, I just had a I had a I had a big lunch and I have vicious breath. And then he used some of the mints and then walked away. That guy with the mints, he's uh, a genius. I felt like I'd really contributed to history because whatever meeting he was attending, you know, at least he'd be a little fresh. (laughs) Okay, so then then what? Um, so so you, then I was broke. Yeah. So I'd racked up credit card debt, enormous credit card debt. I had maxed out all of my credit cards <laughs> and um, I needed money. And they, they say when you're on a presidential transition, you know, we'll get you a job. Just wait, you know, one to two months. The cabinet has to get into place. These other, you know, more senior people have to get into place, um, which you can do if you have people supporting you. But yeah. I needed a job and I needed income. So... Um, I went and became a communications director for SEIU in Pennsylvania on this campaign to oversee, uh, it was on, on healthcare reform. Hmm. And then, did you go back to the Obama so, administration? I can't remember your story. Uh, I, don't, I actually, I'm asking these questions because I don't know. You the don't answer. know. No, yeah. I mean, it's, it was, it was kind of amazing. So, so I learned <laughs> an important lesson at SEIU. Tell me. Uh, if you're a communications director leading a campaign, 
and you are too successful, you will have put yourself out of a job very quickly. So the campaign <laughs> was fast, and uh, we won the moment that Arlen Specter switched parties. Ah, uh, yes. And then he got voted. <laughs> he lost his seat anyway. <laughs> that came later. Uh, but, you know, when I, was, when I was doing this work, I also <laughs> remember that I was on a call with one of the most significant labor leaders in Pennsylvania, who I won't name, and he had said to me, and I, and You're I so got, circumspect. I, you really are quite <laughs> politic. I, I, I have a lot of admiration for you, Jesse. Uh, so, so I had said, well, so we were having this big rally, right? And it was all these labor leaders. And I said, you know, everyone that is speaking is white. And I think that we should think about having a more inclusive speaker roster. And the response of this labor leader was, you are not going to tell me that a Lithuanian is a white person. <laughs> I remember dying laughing on mute as as I tried to compose myself with this idea of like a 1910 white ethnic conflict and like somehow this person had grown up where just for him Lithuanians were not quite white. The National Association of Lithuanians of Color. Um, That's very funny. And, and so I spoke up and I said, I, I, I think most people would disagree. <laughs> and uh, I made a, a little bit of a wave, but we ended up with a more diverse set of speakers. And um, whatever happened at that rally um, later that week, I got a call from uh, Senator Bob Casey's office and they asked if I would be interested in talking with them about um, taking a position in the Senate. Um, so I ended up going to uh, run Senator Casey's Lehigh Valley office, which is the central part of the state, mm-hmm. central east. Wow. That's fun. Yeah. What did you do after that? It was 2025. It was that. a blast. Um, well, we were working on the recovery, mostly. Mm-hmm. The Recovery Act uh, had been big. We were trying to think <laughs> of thoughtful ways to get people jobs, to get things growing, to make investments. Um, and so I got a lot of exposure to working with um, business leaders and CEOs who were creating jobs. Um, I also learned how to go into a town hall of people that are unhappy mm. with what you have to say um, and yet listening to them and, and hearing them out. And have you used um, seeing as how I'm, check this segue out uh, seeing as how you just got married. Are you, are you are you using what you learned in the town hall? I have never once used communications techniques in my personal life. <laughs> Cobbler's kids. I'm absolutely certain of it. <laughs> Cobbler's kids got no shoes. No shoes at all. No shoes at all. <laughs> well, um, Tom, I've never once spun you. Never once. <laughs> I don't think he believes you. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. No, my wife is. Uh, she's quite the. She's. She takes the opposite tag. Like, okay, Mister Communications, why didn't you tell me that? <laughs> well, anytime I forget to say something, it, I get you know. So you're an expert in communications that right. doesn't know how to communicate. I know. We all know this. <laughs> Being hoisted up by my communications petard is my right. is my second job. Right. We're like fitness models who aren't aren't very fit. Exactly. <laughs> Well, I'm, yes, but no, not me. Um, geez, wait, so we've got, we're probably out of time. Uh, but um, I, I guess my question for you is, where do you see this field going? I mean, I know you 
you've just said that you, you think that philanthropy, for example, is moving in a better direction. But where do you see communications in general on the nonprofit side? Where do you see things going? Are, are, what, what is a young person getting into this field? What do they have in store for them? So first off, I think um, it's time to move beyond the term communications. I mean, whatever you call it, I mm-hmm. think it's more about relationships. It's about uh, external engagement public engagement. It's about meaningful relationships outside your organization. Um, Organizations with power, I think, have a responsibility to explain why they do what they do and to get feedback on what they're doing um, and to report out on what they've learned. And I think just by doing that, you advance the public trust in our work. Um, and so I think there is a broad recognition that we need more public trust. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that there's another big dynamic shaping communications, which is that philanthropy used to be foundations. It has really quickly moved into a much more complex ecosystem. We've got huge donor advised funds. You've got mega charities. You've got LLCs distributing money. You've got social enterprises. You've got think tanks that are feeding these social enterprises and foundations. Um, This ecosystem is, I think, really important because, um, you know, at the council, um, Vicky Sproul created this this term leading together. Mm You can't lead alone. You have to lead with other people now. And, you know, anyone who's trying to tackle climate change has got to work with others and figure out how to how to how to be collaborative. And so, um, you know, my number one piece of advice to someone new in the field is think broadly Mm -hmm. and think in an ambitious way, um, because we need to be as ambitious as these problems are big. I like that. That's a nice way to go out. By the way, you have the perfect voice. For the for podcasts, I I have a, I have a voice for for silent film, <laughs> but, but more than that, you have a, a perfect brain for this kind of stuff, and uh, you've you've been great, a great great chair of the of the communications network, and I'm sure you're going to make an even better emeritus. Thank you, and I would say to any my other piece of advice for people with a deep voice <laughs> is that when you are 23, don't know anything, and are in a position of responsibility. Try to avoid meetings in person where people think that you're young. Instead, take phone calls where people think that you're 45 and ready to ready to ready to deal. <laughs> um, I, I had the experience many times of people hearing me and thinking I was much more influential than I actually am. So in my current condition, uh, I just stick to email. That's, that's, that's right. <laughs> well, Jesse Salazar, thank you so much. It's been a, a real pleasure. Likewise, Eric. Thank you. Uh, once again, Eric, <laughs> another walk around the block with Eric and Crony, this time Jesse Salazar. And you, and you got the voice right, by the way. Oh, my God. As impressive as the voice is, I really, really appreciated um, the honesty that came with when you were first like, so what did it feel like being involved with this enterprise, the communications network? And, and Jesse starts just talking about the underlying talent <laughs> in the field. And how impressive, but also how intimidating know, it actually really is. A revelation. Like, Thank you, Jesse. Let's let's order a round of drinks for everybody who's listening, because yes, indeed, it's a little bit intimidating, isn't well, it? Well, it's not. It shouldn't be. I, I, I mean, I hope it isn't. Really, when you come to these conferences and things like that, my my, 
My hope is that people feel welcome. Though there's people say that there are cliques and they don't always know how to navigate this. But people, I mean, I, when I was coming up, I would just call people up and ask them questions and they would take my call. And right. you know, the trick is, the fun thing was that when I left the Hilo Foundation, at least half of the people still took my call. <laughs> Which I thought was bad. You're batting 500. No, no, no. I am kidding. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, this, you, this is the kind of thing that when you work for a foundation, you, there's this aura of, you know, I got so much smarter when I got the job at the Hewlett Foundation. Yeah, and super good looking too. But but it isn't this the thing though. It's it's this is the gist behind this whole enterprise we're launching here. That I do think that undercurrent of intimidation. I know for me, um, certainly coming up new to the field. But I, again, even today, you know, walking into a conference with over a thousand people who are all in some way expert, and, e- and even if you're relatively new to the field, you're probably so focused in a particular domain that within that domain, you're actually arguably a top-notch expert, you know, or at least you have visibility into a depth of knowledge that not, that would be a challenge for others to try to mimic quickly, you know? Yeah. Um, True. Although, I mean, really, I like to think I'm still learning. I really do. If I stop learning, then kindly shoot me in the head. And I'll tell you an interesting story. I was at a conference, a different conference, not ComNet, and there was someone who was leading us through a design thinking type exercise, and it was really interesting. And yeah. I love that kind of stuff. I mean, it's not right. design thinking per se, but I love these things where someone's trying to stretch your brain a little bit. And yeah, I turn. Right. And I turned to this woman and I said, well, I'm like, oh, my God, the top of my head is going to come off. She said, yeah, well, I've been doing this for years. I'm gonna... uh, <laughs> like, yeah, I just, <laughs> oh, God, please. <laughs> so, I mean, I really, I really hope that we're all just learning together because yeah. we don't know what the, I mean, half of the jobs in our field didn't exist five years ago. Certainly right. not ten. There was no social media ten years ago, and the right. way the way our job has become political and how it's become tied to a variety of other things going on out there, it's just a different thing. So if you're not still learning, you're failing. But that, that's a, yeah, a, a bit of a tangent. I, but I do think that I really hope that people have this sense of op- of openness when new people come along because everybody has something to offer. That's for sure. Even me. And the learning is the source for the collaboration. So I have to say that was a really interesting dip your toe that I felt like could have gone much, much longer when you started <laughs> talking about foundations and collaboration. And and I know you kind of poked at it from even the simplest thing. Can we all just get on the same page? Let's have one form we ask everybody in the world to complete and how challenging that is. But But I will say in this whole context of are we winning in that conversation that keeps coming up for us. Yeah. I keep wondering if a thousand years from now, somebody's going to write this history of this time and say, look at all these people who basically had access to an infinite repository of resources and they just could not get their acts together. Mm-hmm. Um, but just this, that whole notion of how difficult it is for even like-minded people who, who really shared, I would argue deeply share some really in just fundamental values. It's still hard to work together in certain, in certain contexts. Yeah. No, it's true. It's really true. I don't, I, but 
getting back to Jesse, such a fabulous guy and an interesting career path. It's just fun to learn from him. And his openness to new things is a lesson, a testament to to learning and a lesson for us all, I think. Oh, by the way, did you know that he painted a mural of Divine on the side of his house in Baltimore? A a, wow. a a three-story mural of Divine on the side of his house in Baltimore. Oh, my so, God. So wow. now, if you're in Baltimore, you won't be able to miss his house. Oh, my goodness. So, my goodness. Well, and I love the projects he talked about specifically, you know, um, and even the work with the vets and, and, you know, bringing, you know, vets back into the domestic landscape. But you know how we've been talking about this idea that communications is the wrong word and it's yeah. inadequate. And and then all of a sudden, Jesse gives us foundations are platforms for ideas. Right. And I loved it. Yeah. Loved it. Loved well, it. Yeah. We had that conversation, well, in a way, when we were talking about Grant's interview uh, last, I don't know, whenever it was. But, yeah. um, the, the <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's a bigger – or it, you could flip it around and, and ask the fundamental question is what are foundations for? Yeah. What is, what is, the, what is their role in society or what is their role in the social, in the social framework? And I guess what are good foundations for? I mean, some foundations yeah. exist to. I mean, most philanthropy goes to either your alma mater, your church, or yeah. some local civic enterprise. Uh, it and that's great. I mean, I think there's absolutely positively a role for that. And then there are other. Th- there's philanthropy that is designed to attack big social problems. And but this idea about being a um, a place for ideas is might even go beyond that, which is it it is an attempt to kind of define what a society can be, and that's really really highfalutin. But some of these things is just, you put an idea out there and and you see what kind of response you get, whether you're en- engaging people, whether you're inspiring people, whether your people come together to do something better, and. That's a nice thing for a, a nice platform for a foundation to be able to stand on and then to support the things that come out of that. I mean, I guess the idea is you start with an idea and then you flesh it out and you fill it with resources and support so that those ideas can take root in one way or the other. Well, and as aspirational as that might get or look or feel, that's also the work that's going to force you to actually get into real conversation with real people doing real things because yeah. you're nowhere if you're not drawing that line. So, you know, I think there's also that element that says it's those aspirations themselves that actually bring us into contact with, with the reality that we're actually, that we're trying to influence and, and hopefully make more positive. Um, my last, uh, my last comment about this whole discussion, this whole thing that we listen to, yeah. you've called me out for being earnest. You even said, I look earnest in my picture. <laughs> These are very earnest conversations you're having, but, and I want to, I want to make this one comment too, which is, um, these are really thoughtful people thinking very thoughtfully about very important work, aren't they? And I think that that piece, um, sometimes we're so busy and we're so just, we're so like trying to hit that mark of what is measurable, what's impact. I think that piece sometimes misses, we miss it, you know, just how hard the work is and how, how hard we're actually all 
digging into it to try to advance it. And I just, I, that, that came out for me and how you and Jesse were talking about stuff. And I actually really appreciated that too. Well, I'm, I'm glad, I guess, what am I an earnest in a cynic's clothing? <laughs> <laughs> it's how I, it's how I, I protect my earnest little fragile, yeah. what's left of my soul. I, I, <laughs> shrouded in cynicism and you know right that's how we stay sane and quips actually the same four quips i'm running i'm really i'm running out of guests i'm running out of cronies i'm running out of material it's it's like the first season of of mrs Maisel. You need some more truisms. That's right. No, that's right. Well, that was really awesome, Eric. So, so Eric and Jesse Zalazar, that was what a treat. And Jesse, thank you for joining us on the podcast. We really, really appreciated it. All right, everybody. That's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And that includes yourself. We'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator. Sarah Morgan, our tireless social and digital media maven. John L.E., our tuneful and inspiring composer of the theme music. Ben Rockwood, our brilliant partner behind the production curtain. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation for supporting this work and for a host of other important initiatives in the world, particularly around communications and journalism. We certainly thank our guests and, of course, all of you. And thank you, Mr. Brown. Well, no, no, no. Thank you, Mr. Brown. (laughs) Until next time. Let's hear it.